If you would please turn in your Bibles with me to a new chapter, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. When we step back to look at the whole book that Mark has written, we see that it is organized to give the clearest possible picture of Jesus as the king. This gospel, according to Mark, can easily be divided into two main sections. The first half, we see Jesus convincing his disciples that he is the king by demonstrating his authority as the king in and through his ministry. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, and then after baptizing him, the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, anointing him as the King and Messiah and commissioning him as God's righteous servant. And then the voice of God the Father declared, You are my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, which confirmed Jesus' anointing, his commissioning, and his mission. As Jesus began his ministry, it was filled with authoritative teaching and healing, casting out demons, cleansing of lepers, forgiveness of sins, creating food out of nothing, power over nature, and calling the Jewish leaders to task for their unbelief and hypocrisy. In the second half of this gospel, we see Jesus predicting and showing that he is the king by demonstrating his authority as the king in and through his suffering. In chapter 8, verse 31, we read, And he began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, the scribes too, and be killed and after three days rise again. He also gave Peter, James, and John an up-close and personal view of him clothed in his divine glory and his transfiguration. These three disciples heard God the Father's voice confirming his son's authority as the king by commanding them to listen to him. You find that interesting? Listen to him. Jesus immediately followed this event by making the point again that the Old Testament scriptures do write about the necessity of the anointed Messiah and Son of God to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. This message to his disciples was repeated several key times, but they just couldn't get their heads around it. As Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, the disciples knew he did so deliberately. The danger and hatred there from the religious leaders was much more than palpable. Would Jesus turn the table on them again and prove himself to be the powerful conquering Messiah, even ridding their beloved nation of the hated Romans as easily as he calmed the storm On the Sea of Galilee? 
They certainly hoped he would because their lives were on the line along with his. Yet they had heard his teaching about suffering and being rejected and being killed. Can you see their concern? How can all this go together? They didn't know. But we do know what is just ahead of him. And it is the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the beating, the crucifixion, the death and burial of Jesus, and finally, the completely unexpected resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' predictions that he would be the king who must suffer and die for the sin of those he came to save are now going to be fulfilled in the rest of the Gospel of Mark. James pointed out to me, or reminded me, that at the same time we'll be starting to sing Christmas music, we will be hearing a preaching of the Word in the part of the Gospel about His crucifixion and resurrection. I personally think that's the way it should be. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them, And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Now, I know you noticed this because you can't. If you just read it and heard it, there's no way you can miss this. But the first thing to notice about this passage is the stark contrast drawn between the middle verses 
and the first and last verses. The beginning and end record the hatred of the religious leaders and Judas Iscariot's planned betrayal. And sandwiched in between those in the middle is what? The love and the devotion demonstrated by Mary. We could call the religious leaders and Judas Iscariot's antics the bookends, which are worthless. And the middle are the books that contain the glorious picture of Christ being anointed by a friend. In chapter 14, we see it begins with a time reference. It says, and it was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Passover is the Jewish festival commemorating the occasion when the angel of the Lord passed over the homes of the Hebrews on the night he killed all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. The lambs used in the feast were slain and then eaten that evening between sundown and midnight. On Thursday night would be the beginning of the Jewish Friday. Always have to stop and we think daylight savings time is hard. You've got to consider all this when you read these time references. Because a Jewish day began at sundown. This means that the Passover meal shared by Jesus and his disciples was on our Thursday evening. And two days before that, when Jesus' enemies held their meeting, would be during the day of Tuesday. We can view the Passover as pointing directly to Calvary and the redemption by blood. What? Redemption by blood. From Egypt, the type, a type of the world. From Pharaoh, who is a type of Satan. From Egyptian servitude, which is a type of being enslaved to sin. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread immediately followed... Passover, it was so close, seven days, that usually it was referred to many times as being Passover. They included them both in the reference. It typifies a holy walk of a person who has been redeemed, thus a believer. The order of redemption came first and then followed by a holy walk. And what's it pictured by? Well, it's in the title. It's pictured by a week of eating unleavened bread. And putting away all leaven from the household was a graphic portrayal of holiness. Leaven is a figure of malice and evil and is not fitting, befitting a, a believer's walk, of course. In 1 Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes, and you'll find many references to this in the New Testament as well as the Old, but Paul writes there, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, and he's speaking of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you see that contrast marked as well. In the rest of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14, we get another clear picture of the religious leader's hatred of Jesus. Again, we read, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. These guys are more politicians than they are religious leaders. Notice how important it was to these leaders that their plan to get rid of Jesus would not be a public spectacle. They're going to great pains to keep it from being a public spectacle. They were trying to kill him, but trying to figure out how to arrest him by stealth, which means treachery, trickery, being sly and deceitful about it all. In other words, in and through all this, what did they want? They wanted to come out of it still in control and power and looking good to all the people. Yes, Jesus described them many ways, did he not? And these guys were the ones whom he spoke very bluntly and harshly to for a good reason. But the title of evil hypocrites fits them very, very well. Notice also that the overruling providence of God completely defeated their political plan. How? The betrayal of the Lord took place at an earlier time than the chief priest expected. Because of Judas chiming in. The death of Christ took place on the very day Jerusalem was filled with the most people that were ever there during any other time of the year. In every way, their designs were turned to foolishness. They thought that they would end forever Christ's spiritual following and kingdom. But what happened? In reality, they had helped establish it. They thought his execution or crucifixion would make Jesus look vile and contemptible. But in reality, they made him even more glorious. They wanted to put him to death privately without very many people even observing it. But instead, they were compelled to see him crucified as publicly as is humanly possible before what amounted to be the whole nation of Israel gathered here for this Passover and feast. They thought getting rid of Jesus would silence his followers and stop their teaching. But instead, they had given his disciples a text and a subject to proclaim forever and ever in every part of the world. It is so easy for God to cause the wrath of men 
to actually end up help lift up praises to him. Do you see God working in unexpected ways many times in your life? The last thing you ever expected to happen to bring glory to his name happens. Psalm 76.10 surely fits this and proclaims this. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. These truths should comfort us. They should comfort us. Will you let them comfort you? They should comfort us because we do live in a troubled world. And we're often tossed to and fro by all sorts of anxiety about various kinds of public tragedies. Often, last week, we could make a list a mile long. And we should rest in the God who is and that he really does work all things for his people's good and his glory. Only a good God could work through the troubling things to accomplish eternal things. Psalm 2, verses 2 and 4. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. From verse 12. Now skipping a moment to the end of our passage today, to the second bookend, one sentence. Judas arranges to betray Jesus. And all we need to say here is that Judas starts to act on his evil desire to betray Jesus for a measly profit. Now, in complete contrast to those bookends, to the Jewish religious leaders' hatred and evil murder, murderous conspiracy and Judas's part in it, we now see Mark's flashback to Jesus' anointing at Bethany. This happened, as John 12 records, six days before Passover, before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the setting is in verse, in verse 3 to, through 9 is in Bethany, about two miles southwest of Jerusalem, where Jesus and his disciples had been staying. Simon was most assuredly a leper who had been healed by Jesus, thus the dinner in Jesus' honor. And the woman who anointed Jesus is identified in John's account as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The alabaster flask had a long neck on it that was broken off when it was used. And this flask or vase or vial, there's all sorts of words to show what it is, was made of a fine white or slightly tinted and fine-grained gypsum material. And it was very, very costly. Not just the flask, but especially what was in it. 
The ointment was an imported perfume, an oily substance that was fragrant, and it came from the Himalayans of India. Had to be imported. Very costly. Guess who knew much how much it was? It was worth. Judas. He's the one that makes the statement. He's speaking for some of the other guys, but he's the one that voiced it. A denarius is one day's work wage for a laborer, so if it's more than 300 denarii, this is almost a year's pay for a laborer. What's that worth today? At least $25,000, all the way up, depending on what kind of labor it is, to 30, 40 in one flask. Verse 3. And he was reclining at table. And a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. John 12, verse 3 adds that Mary also anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. Mary, along with her sister Martha... And brother Lazarus had opened their home to Jesus before. The sisters had even seen what? Jesus raised their brother from the dead. Luke 10 record that when Jesus had visited Bethany before, it was Mary who sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. It was Mary who made the wise choice during that visit. She sat as a disciple and listened and learned. In contrast to most in that culture, Jesus did encourage women to study the scriptures. He even explained to Martha, who was more anxious about serving him and getting everything just right, about serving him. So he explained to Martha that listening to him and being with him, as Mary did, had been the wiser choice by sitting at his feet. And that Mary had done what Mary had done would what? Would not ever be taken away from her. So now Mary unexpectedly approaches Jesus' reclining at the table, holding this priceless flask of perfumed ointment. She snapped off the narrow neck and poured a generous portion of Jesus' head. If you were sitting somewhere in this, whether it was at the eating where they ate, kind of leaning over, or anywhere else in the house, we'd be aghast. What is she doing And then she poured the rest humbly on his feet and she worshipped him in this action, wiping his feet with her hair. This was an intensely fervent expression of devotion and worship, unmatched in scripture anywhere. It was so devotional and focused that Mary seemed to be completely unaware of what all the other people might be thinking about what she was doing. In fact, it seems that that just wasn't on her mind at all. 
which is sort of the point. Now, the immediate response of Judas Iscariot, Judas is named also in John as being the one who actually voiced it. He He immediately, indignantly rebuked her and scolded her. In John's account there, we get a picture or commentary in hindsight of Judas's heart. You know, there's not very many times where we get these. You know, where the writer turns into a commentator and says, hey, this is what's going on here. But he does here. wonder why. John does. Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Period. That's all he had to say. Now, Jesus defended Mary's act of worship in verses 6 through 9. First, in verse 6, he affirmed that what she did, what's the word Jesus used? Look at it. Beautiful. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. There's at least three reasons why her act of worship was beautiful. First, Jesus was aware of her loving motive, which came from a beautiful and a humble heart. What she did was from simple, real love of Christ, which becomes his treasure. Secondly, the reason her act of worship was beautiful was because it seemed to come from a spontaneous response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Calvin actually said this. He wrote, she was guided by the breath of the Spirit that ensured confidence she should do this duty to Christ. That's a nice way of saying her love overflowed And we'll talk about this in a minute, but she may have had more sense of what was coming in the next couple of days than anybody else in the whole city. And she knew where this probably family heirloom was located and what was in it. It It's the only thing they had. She wasn't a woman of means. And she grabbed it and walked up to him and did it. Beautiful, Jesus says. And we often lose sight of the Spirit's promptings when we unthinkingly comply only to what seems to be common sense or the business of life. True? We can't blame this just on the English. Jokes about certain countries and how they respond. Hey, this is on us. We ignore the impulse to write a letter of appreciation or maybe a prompting to tell somebody we love them or the urge to give to meet a need, and therefore there's no possibility of a thing of beauty happening in those situations. Another reason her act of worship was beautiful was because it wasn't dominated just by practicality. Anybody a slave to practicality? Hey, it's good to be practical. It's also good to know what moment is proper for what. And would be a beautiful thing. In other words, it was done to and for Jesus with no thought of whether it was practical or sensible. 
Now, some of you artists or musicians may understand this a little better than the rest of us. Jesus praised Mary's non-productive act of devotion. Is that a nice way to say it? Don't be afraid of chewing on that, thinking about it, pondering it. Now, secondly, in defense of Mary, he defended her action because it placed him before anything else. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do for them, but you will not always have me. In other words, he would not be with them very long, so her act of worship should not be berated. Gethsemane, the trial, Golgotha, the resurrection, and his ascension were still ahead. But time was running out for such expressions of devotion and love while he was still here. Think about what this meant to him. Nobody else even understood what would happen in the next couple of days. And if they did hear it, they thought he'd just turn it around immediately. There's the conquering Messiah in the new world. This is a beautiful picture. And what he's doing here, in contrast, opportunities for helping the poor would continue. There is no evidence in Jesus' statement of any lack of concern for the poor, and anybody that tries to make it say that is off. On the contrary, there is ample evidence elsewhere that the poor's interests and needs lay close to his heart always, always, always. In fact, his, in his statement is really the implication of the ongoing responsibility to help the poor. Thirdly, he defended Mary's action because it showed how complete her devotion was. See that one sentence? She has done what she could. Verse 8 at the beginning. She gave her all. She was not a person of means, but she did give what she could. One commentator writes that Jesus would have never said she has done what she could if she had measured out the perfume in grudging drops. That made me laugh. It got through. Here's a drop for your head. Here's a drop. Two drops. One for each foot. We must ask ourselves, is my devotion to Christ costing me anything? Is there any deprivation to it? Any inconvenience to it? She has done what she could. How about us? Fourth, in verse 8, he defended Mary's action because it was so and we've talked about this already, insightful. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus said this. I've always wondered how the disciples remembered this afterwards. When it hit them. What she had really done. 
And we've seen over and over again that even though Jesus repeatedly spoke plainly of his death, the disciples characteristically just passed it off. They just couldn't conceive of a suffering Messiah. And that picture did not fit their preconceived notions. But Mary seems to have yielded herself to his teachings, which she submitted herself to every chance she got, and accepted what he said was coming. It looks like she realized to some degree that when this tragedy came, she would not be able to do anything about it. So what'd she do? She decided that she would do what she could while she could. This goes a long way in explaining the extraordinary expression of her act of devotion, does it not? As in many cultures, a Jewish woman's hair was considered to be her glory. Now, you gals will understand this a whole lot better than people with no hair do. What does that mean? Mary letting her hair down and then using it to dry Jesus' feet meant that all of her humanity and all of her glory was devoted to him in worship. And that's really all you can say about it. No one can really know what the ultimate significance of his or her devotion may be in service to the Lord. But Jesus finished here by saying, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, wherever what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that's what we're doing right now, is it not? Why is her story part of the gospel? Because she was a demonstration of what happens in a life genuinely touched by the gracious and loving Savior. If your life has genuinely been touched by God, you step down off of your own throne. You quit arguing for yourself. You quit all the malarkey that comes out of our mouths when we're trying to prop ourselves up and be right. You humble yourself. And boy, is this a picture of that or what? What does Mary's example tell us about what Jesus desires of us? How about he appreciates beautiful hearts that he transforms? Beautiful because of our motivation, because it comes from our hearts in response to the Spirit's leading, because it's done solely, solely for the Savior's glory and not ours. Jesus wants us to put Him first above every other good thing in life. doesn't mean you trash every other thing in your life. It means He goes first to interpret what the other things in life are. And you answer to Him. He wants us to do what we can. He wants our devotion to be informed by a deepening understanding of his word and who he is. 
Jesus knows that we can never know who we are until we first know who He is. John Calvin's introductory to his institutes. And when you start off like that, you know the rest of the book is going to be unbelievable. Let me say that again, quote that again. All of us who have identity problems and we want to be this or that and we're discouraged because we're not what we dream to be and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we live our lives depressed and in the dumps because of nothing's gone right. Listen, Jesus knows that we can never know who we are until we know who he is first. Put it on your refrigerator, in your hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are confronted with the most beautiful act of worship probably ever recorded. We are given insight into Mary's heart. We see Jesus defending her in the face of this hypocrisy and evil that's demonstrated by the leaders and by Judas. And we go there so often ourselves. Thank you for stripping away all the pretense in this example of Scripture and that her example is being proclaimed and will be as long as her gospel is proclaimed forever and ever. And she wants no glory at all. It was all for her Lord who had raised her brother, who had spent time in her house, who had taught in her house as she sat at his feet. Oh, may we respond to your love, your gospel, your word by that humble, humble, teachable attitude. And just be quiet and listen. Oh, Lord, we give you glory. We thank you for this passage in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read Psalm 3.3. You can remain seated. We will uh, have a, I mean, this is, we're literally talking three, five minutes as fast as everything can be passed out right after this. So the members, if you haven't voted, uh, if you're a regular tender and you want to let know what you think, um, please do participate after, right after this benediction. An elder will come up to lead us in that. Psalm 3, 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Amen. Seth will now direct us. All right, I call the uh, 